I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. This morning we're going to look at the fourth verse. Our Lord Jesus, having ascended this mountain, He sat down, His disciples came to Him, He opened His mouth, He taught them saying, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We come back this morning to our summertime studies, studies that will keep us in the Beatitudes for uh, the month of August, these seven statements of our Lord in which he outlines the crucial elements that comprise Christian character. We made a distinction in our message last week that happiness is not the same as pleasure. And there's very little that so demonstrates the fact that this blessedness or this happiness, this makarios, the Greek word that Jesus uses, that means happiness, the fact that it is not the same as pleasure is really underscored by the fact that Jesus would speak about such an unpleasant, an unpleasurable matter as mourning, as being characterizing those who are truly happy. It seems like a contradiction in terms. Happy are the sad. Happy are those who mourn. There's little that's pleasurable in and of itself. In, and of itself. in either of these first two things we've looked at, being poor in spirit or of mourning, what in the world can be pleasurable about being a beggar? Recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy. Understanding that we can't not live upon our own resources that we have nothing can do nothing stand in need of all things and come to the awareness that we need to be living day by day on the gracious and unending wealth and resources resident not within here but resident within the living and the true God there's nothing pleasurable about that although of course being poor in spirit leads us into a world of pleasure and blessing as we look to the Lord and trust in Him and rest in Him and derive all good coming from Him. And there's nothing pleasurable in and of itself about mourning. Mourning is what you do when you experience tragedy or loss or devastation or death. And yet Jesus says, happy are the devastated. Happy are those who are poverty-stricken and they're mourning. Well, are they mourning about being poverty-stricken? Is that what it is? We're poor in spirit, so we mourn about it? We feel ourselves victimized by a hard and cruel world? And we're not what we should be and what we ought to be? I don't think it's that at all. Again, the whole attitude of being poor in spirit is the thing that drives you out of yourself. It's not that you look to yourself and say, Oh man, I'm poor in spirit. That makes me special. No. It makes God special. His resources special. You need to trust in Him and live upon Him to be the very end of life. But yet we are those who are poor in spirit living amongst those who ought to recognize their poverty of spirit as well. But they have nothing to bring to God. 
And the people of this world are filled with themselves, filled with their own ability to make life happy on their own. And they end up doing it with, with cruelty and, and, and heartless abandonment to their own desires and neglect of the needs of others. There's a weight of evils that comprise a fallen world that we're called upon to live in. And I believe it's that reality of the world in its sin, the world in its fallenness that brings the believer to tears that brings the believer to come and to weep. I want to look with you this morning at the subject of mourning. And I want to look at it from three points of view. First of all, we want to say something about its essence. What is the thing in its essential quality? What is this mourning concerned with? Secondly, we're going to say something about the effects of this mourning. What is this? Is it any good? Does it do anything of any benefit to us to be those who are... Uh, spiritual mourners or godly mourners, well, there are good effects, and we want to outline what some of those are. And then finally, we want to conclude with the note, note of where does this all end? Where's the end of mourning? When does this all cease? Well, there is an end that the Bible points us to. It says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's begin with the essence of the thing. Let me say that this mourning is not a characteristic that simply common to everyone in the world. I mean, everybody mourns over something at some time. Jesus is not saying that anybody anywhere who's ever known mourning, who's ever known tears, who's ever experienced grief is blessed. He simply is not saying that. That would be ridiculous. There's nothing about grief or mourning that is at all beneficial to us in and of itself. People can experience loss and become bitter and angry, swear vengeance, show hostility to God be callous towards others we read of a pharaoh in Egypt who experienced ten plagues that ought to have broken him that ought to have brought him to tears before God calling upon the Lord for mercy and he continued to harden his heart he may have whipped bitterly on his bed at night but still refused the next day to allow the Israelites to go to have anything to do with obedience to, to Yahweh. Who is Yahweh that I should obey Him? There is a mourning that is common to all people at one time or another, but that's not what Jesus is saying is blessed. This is not a natural mourning. This is a supernatural mourning. It comes from God and it has reference to God and to the things of God. Now it's more than likely that these first two Beatitudes, being poor in spirit and mourning, is an allusion to a passage that's found in the 61st chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61. Now the thing about Isaiah 61 that may tie it in to what we read here is the fact not only that there's a mention there of the poor, and mention there of mourning, and mention there of comforting, and all that's found in the opening verses of Isaiah 61, but it's also the passage that Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus... In the synagogue of Nazareth, at the beginning of his account of the Galilean ministry, Jesus read that scripture. He read Isaiah 61. And he commented on it and said, This day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's look at the passage that Jesus read. 
in the synagogue of Nazareth. Isaiah chapter 61. The beginning of his public ministry, our Lord Jesus read these words, that the Spirit of Yahweh God is upon me, because Yahweh, the God of Israel, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You see the poor are there, the brokenhearted are there, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. That's where Jesus ends the reading. He doesn't speak about the day of the vengeance of our God. But yet this is a passage that goes on to say, to comfort all who mourn. To comfort all who mourn. Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Isaiah says, the Messiah has been sent to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them. A beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Why did they have a faint spirit? Why did they sit in sackcloth and ashes? Why did they have a spirit of mourning? Well, you have to read the whole section of Isaiah that really begins in chapter 40, where God says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. There's a word of comfort that God speaks to a people who have been oppressed. A people of whom He says they've received from the Lord's hand double for all of their sins. The picture of Isaiah chapter 40 and following is the picture of a people in exile. A people that have been taken away from their land. A people that have been sent into Babylon. They've been uprooted from their homes. They've been sent away to a foreign land. They're exiled from God's land, God's city, God's temple, God's presence in Jerusalem. Why? Why were they exiled? Why did they in ashes? Why were they mourning? God says they're receiving double for all their sins. It was their idolatry. It was their apostasy. It was their unfaithfulness. It was their rebellion. In short, it was sin in all of sin's dimensions that brought about this state of mourning. And this is what seems to me is at the heart of this grace of mourning. It's the ability to feel deeply the pain and the heartache of a fallen world. A world disordered and damaged and devastated by the reality of human sin. It's what the prophet Ezekiel was referring to when in that vision that God gave him in chapter 9. Remember the man that went out with the inkwell and began to mark the people in the city who sighed and cried for the abominations that were done in the land. And then he sent the man with the sword through the city it was in the vision. This didn't actually happen. It was in the vision that all who didn't have that mark, in other words, all who didn't sigh and cry for the abominations that were done in the land, they were slaughtered. They were killed. They were put to death. You see, it's not just that the righteous are exempt or free from or guiltless with regard to such abominations. It's the fact that they're troubled by it. They're vexed by it. 
They mourn over the condition of a fallen world. They groan about the evils that are done under the sun. The prophet Jeremiah chides the same generation, this generation of Israelites taken into captivity or facing death because of their idolatry and apostasy and abominations. He tells them that they were no longer capable of even blushing. There was no sense of shame. No sense of the wrong, of the things that they did. In fact, in chapter 7, verses 8 to 10, he says, Behold, this is Jeremiah speaking in chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. Behold, he says, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? Will you do all that stuff? Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, do all of these evils, and then come and stand before me in this house, in the temple of Jerusalem, and say, we are delivered, only then to go on and do these abominations still? What are they doing? They're living lives of shameless lawlessness, with no regard to the eye of God, then they said, it's Sunday, let's go to church. Let's go to church. And then they sat in church and they praised the Lord. We're delivered. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. They were clapping right along. We're saved and we know it. See, God's people look at that and we weep. God's people look at that and we know, we know what... What Jeremiah said is absolutely correct. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. You bought into a lie. You think you're honoring God, and you're not honoring God. And our heart grieves that God's not honored. Our heart grieves that people are deceived. Our heart grieves that in doing what they do in their murders and their adulteries, they're hurting other people. People are the victims of these lawless acts. Psalm 119, verse 136 says this, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. My eyes shed streams of tears. Why? His people don't honor God. They don't receive His laws. They don't abide by His instructions. They live for their own, their, their own desires. And in so doing, they dishonor God and they hurt and wound and devastate other people. There's no such thing as victimless crimes. This crime, every sin that the Bible speaks of, someone is victimized. And even the one who commits it is victimized by his own deception, his own willingness to be self-deceived. Tonight we're going to look in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 9 and verse 1. It says these words, it says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I may weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Now those words could well be words that Jeremiah himself spoke. But you know, just a couple of verses down in the very same paragraph, you know what it says? It says, Thus says the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord. Now, I know and you know that God doesn't have a head and doesn't have eyes, doesn't have tear ducts, and this is metaphoric, but it speaks to the issue if in fact God is the one speaking these words of the fact that God does grieve. That those whom He has made in His image and likeness, those whom He has purposed for His communion and fellowship to live in the light of His love and to live in the light of His truth, have so given themselves over to wickedness and evil of every sort that God said, if I had a head and I had tear ducts, they'd simply be streaming out tears continually. The evil abominations of my people that have brought judgment upon them, the slain of the daughter of my people. God does not look at the human condition with indifference. God looks at the human condition and he grieves over the wicked acts that are done. How can we look at the human condition and not mourn ourselves, not grieve ourselves? If you have any sense of decency or any sense of moral understanding and instruction, our hearts would grieve. Paul could write to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, For many of whom I have told you and now tell you they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now I left a important word out there. This we'd be tempted to state something similar to this. That I've told you, and I tell you now, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. We need to get them. We need to exclude them. We need to judge them. We need to maybe pass a law against them that they shouldn't even breathe and exist. And we will be filled with hostility. They're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly, whose end is destruction. And we might speak those words bitterly, but not the Apostle Paul. He says, there are many of whom I've told you, and now tell you, weeping, weeping, tears of water run down my eyes. Because they're enemies of the cross of Christ. He weeps for these people. He weeps for the evils that these people do. He weeps for the judgment that these people will face. God's people weep because we can't ignore the reality of sin in the fallen world. Now, I want to set a warning here because we're tempted to read words like this and I think I might even preach on a similar line of what I'm going to tell you. I don't think this passage is telling us. But I think in the past I may have said things along the line that um, godly mourning means that you're mostly concerned about your own sins. That you're mourning over your own sins. You're concerned about your own thoughts, your own motives, your own intentions. And hence you need to pour over your heart, pour over your lives daily until you're brought to tears. I remember a time when I was bothered if I couldn't cry over my sins. And I was more concerned about not crying over my sins than I was concerned about the sins themselves. I should have been crying over 
I was concerned that I didn't have a sufficient emotionally proper response to the reality of my sins. But you see, there's simply nothing in the Bible of having an emotional response to the reality of your sins. Because in fact, if we really understood what this gospel is about, our emotional reaction to the reality of our sin should be that there is a fountain laid open for sin and uncleanness where I can go to and be rid of its guilt, be rid of its stain. If any man sins, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins. If any man sin, we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And folks, that's not saying we go easy on ourselves about sin. But it's saying when we see our sins, we know where to go. And the weeping of our hearts and minds soon turns to joy. God is a God of pardons. He's taken my sins and He's separated them from Himself as far as the east is from the west. He's taken my sins. He's trampled them underfoot. He's cast them into the depths of the sea. He's blotted them out. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, I think it's an odd thing. When Jesus has first spoken about the first aspect of blessedness, spiritual poverty, that's something that gets you out of you into God, into His grace, into His provisions. It's recognizing I have no resources in myself. It's self-emptying. It's self-denying. It's, 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 it's God-exalting. It's getting into the blessings that God has to give His people. It's coming with the empty cup as a beggar saying, Lord, fill me. Fill me. With the knowledge I need. The wisdom I need. The right thoughts that I need. The right feelings that I need. I get it all from God anyway. I need to be coming to God. I need that to be all caught up with me. Oh, how I failed. How I've lived poorly. How does that benefit you? How does it get you out of you? How does it get you into the realm of help for the things that you lack in yourself? And one of the problems about this, you see, is that when you get all caught up about yourself, it's easy to get self-loathing. It's easy to get self-despairing. It's easy to become self-harming. That's the danger of that. I think Nehemiah understood it. From the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 8, we read again of a nation that had been in captivity. A nation that had returned to the land. They built the wall in the book of Nehemiah. The people gather in Nehemiah chapter 8. And Ezra the scribe brings the book of the law of Moses. And begins to read the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard. Verse 3, he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Imagine that. Reading of the word of God from early morning to midday. 
in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for the purpose. And then in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. So it's not wrong to have a pulpit. <laughs> Ezra was above all the people. And he opened it all to the people. And, uh, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads. They worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. They gave the sense so the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. And listen to what he says. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now there were times in Israel's past when the word of the law was read. When Josiah, for instance, read the law when it was found in the temple by Hilkiah the high priest. And when the reading was done by the heirs of the people, the people feared God spoke words of judgment. He spoke words of cursing. He spoke words that were hard words to hear. I'm not sure they wept at that period. But they did fear. And they did take some steps every form. But here the people, or the next generation, or part of the descendants of the next generation that simply forgot those reforms, went on in their sin, got judged for their sins, were sent into exile. Now they've come back, they're reading the law, and all they can think of is this law exposes the raw nerve of the reality of our sins. Nothing to do but weep. Nothing to do but cry. No pleasure, no joy, no happiness, no praise. At all can we feel. And Ezra says, no, 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 no. That may have been proper for a time in your past. There may have been a proper for a time when your hearts were hardened. But now God has restored you to the land. He's restored you to the city. He's restored you to His favor. And this is a time that you don't focus in upon the cursing parts. You so focus in upon the blessing parts. You focus in upon the reality that it's not the... Weeping, that's going to be the strength of, your, of God's people. But it's the joy of the Lord. He says that is your strength. He says, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. I cannot picture... A meeting of the church of Jesus who live in the light of His resurrection grace and power who gathers on the first day of the week to celebrate the reality of a risen Jesus who would simply gather for the purposes of let's sit down in misery and sulk and pity ourselves how awful the world is how awful our sins are how awful everything in the world is we're part of a resurrection people. 
a new creation people. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A new creation has commenced in the person of our Lord Jesus. And that should bring joy. We were, Peter could say to people, even in the midst of their afflictions, he says, count it all joy when you fall into these afflictions. And he goes on to say that even in the face of these afflictions, you trust in the Jesus who having not seen, yet you believe. You haven't seen Him, yet you believe. And believing, he says, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You see, this is a state of mourning that does coexist with the reality of joy. I mean, because this is a state of continuous mourning in one respect. It's a present tense verb that's used. It's a present tense participle. It's an act of continual word. Blessed are those who are always mourning. Constantly mourning. Continually mourning. And if we were always mourning about ourselves and mourning about our deficiencies and our things that are negative in us, how could we ever be joyful at all? But we're a people that rejoice in, in Christ. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice with the joy that cannot be taken from you. In the world you have tribulation. Fear not, I've overcome the world. No one can take away the joy and the peace that the gospel comes to bring. And yet we're always living in the face of that which ought to bring tears to our eyes. Though within of ourselves we know it is well with our souls. Though in ourselves we rejoice in an all-sufficient God living upon His grace. We always see around us the reality of the plight of a fallen world. We're always mourning the cruelty, the indifference that people show to one another in their needs, the callousness. How can you read about Ukraine and not be filled with tears? How can you read about the, the famine in the Horn of Africa and not be moved to tears? How could you know the reality of suffering in the world and not be moved to tears? You can't be calloused in the face of this. In the face of very real things, the godly mourn because they react to the world in its present fallen state. Not in a way of self-pity. Not in a way of self-depression and despair. Not in a way of introspection, looking within. But yet as the ones who have been blessed of God looking at the reality that the world knows so little of the joys we know. The world knows so little of the blessings that we possess. And that leads us to what should be the effects of this godly mourning. Let me suggest in the first place the first effect should be it simply gets us off of ourselves and out of ourselves and directs our thoughts to the very real needs of the world around us. To pray for the victims of sin. To pray for the gospel to come and bring its comforts to those in darkness, to those in the shadow of death, to those who experience the horrors of life in a world of uncertainty, in a world of violence, in a world of oppression. 
The people of the world are self-deceived and they love deceiving others. They don't even know where their peace lies, what their greatest need is. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. You know why? Because they couldn't weep for themselves. He says, you do not even know that you've, you've given up on the re- very place of your peace. You've turned away from it. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers his chickens under his wings. But you would not. You would not. You don't know the things that belong to your peace. What truly is your well-being? It's not to run from God. It's not to rejoice in your independence. It's not to rejoice in your self-sufficiency. The world has no ability to weep for themselves and we should be weeping for them. That God would visit them with His presence and with His grace and with His love and with His salvation. And then, if we are godly mourners, mourning the reality of life in a fallen world, we'll be moved to weep with those that weep. Not just to weep at a distance from them, but to get up close to the people in their concerns. To show a lost world that Christians can do more than censure, criticize, and condemn. We're good at that. We are schooled in that. We're very talented in that. We can censure, criticize, and condemn with the best of them. But can we cry with them? Can we cry with real sympathy, with the real misery, with the real pain that exists in a fallen world and seek to make known among men that the God we serve is a God who, like us, cares about them? He's not indifferent to them. And that's why we're not indifferent to them. I sat with a woman. My wife was next to me. She was in front of me. We were at a James Taylor concert. And she began to tell me a little bit about her life. And I sat there nearly weeping. And then she told me that she's battling breast cancer. And I nearly just gave it up with tears right then and there. I really felt myself just drawn out to someone I didn't even know. Just because she, I know she's an image bearer of God. I know she's a person with a history. I know she's a person who's experienced pain. And, 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 and physical pain, yes. Pain with respect to family matters, church matters. Being disappointed in churches she formerly went to. She was amazed. She actually met a pastor who enjoys music. It was at a concert. And a pastor who could talk with some degree of measure of love. And she says, oh, only if I live near your church. I really need to get out here and stop talking to people. It's the people that are near the church. She's living down in Westchester County. She says, man, if I was anywhere near, I'd come tomorrow to your church. Or Sunday, I'd come to your church. And... Uh, Jan and I had just a wonderful time talking to her and to her husband. And that's because compassion led. Deep concern led. And it demonstrates the reality of our love to people, our commitment to people, our interest in people, and reflects something of the heart of God. So I had the privilege of saying to her, look, don't judge the gospel by the people who claim to be its representatives. Judge the people by the Jesus who came from the glory he had with the Father from the foundation of the world to seek it to save the lost. Judge Christianity by its, by its Lord. I hope I'll see that woman in heaven.
I hope that she'll be in glory. And I hope that at least something of the fact that you have a heart to be able to mourn for people is a, is a link to show love, to show compassion, to be able to weep with those who weep. And then finally, it will impel us to pray. To pray. To give. To a compassion fund. Or to the needs that people have. To visit the widow and the orphan in their affliction. To do the works of mercy that Jesus says will praise at the last day. That I was hungry and you fed me. I was a prisoner and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you took me in. When, Lord? When? When did we do these things? Inasmuch as you did it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. So what should be the effects of this godly morning was to get us out of ourselves into others in acts that seek to minister and serve to ease the troubles and the pain and the realities of the evils of the present evil age and to present the hope of the gospel and then just finally the end of morning Jesus says they will be comforted and you know if it's the exile that was the cause of their mourning you know where the comfort comes? Returning from exile. Coming back to Jerusalem. Coming back to the temple. Coming back to God's worship. Coming back to God's presence. That's what makes the gospel the gospel. It's not just that we go to it, but He comes to us. The one who is the fullness of the Godhead who dwells bodily, who is the true temple of God, our Lord Jesus, He comes into the world seeking and saving those that are lost. To bring us to Himself. So we know God in Christ. We know the presence of God in Christ. We know the fullness of the Godhead in Jesus. And that's really where the, where the joy begins. It's knowing Christ. It's knowing the blessings of so great a salvation. And yet we do weep for the world that does not know our Lord. But even that's going to come to an end. Both Isaiah 25, I believe it is, and Revelation chapter 21 speaks of an hour in which resurrection of the dead will take place in which a new heavens and new earth will take place. And one of the great things that will be true is that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no weeping in the new creation. There will be no weeping in the new creation because there'll be no exile we will be home we'll be home with Christ in glory in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells and joy reigns supreme let's go to the Lord in prayer Father we are thankful for the blessings of the gospel we're thankful for the comforts of the gospel that meet us in the midst of a fallen world and teaches us to empathize and sympathize and to give of ourselves in self-denying, self-giving love to others in the fullness of the plight therein in a fallen and a, 
a harsh and a cruel world. Lord, help us to be your eyes and your ears and your tongue, your voice, your hands, your heart to a needy world. And that by your grace and by your power, we might do the world a world of good. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we come to the supper. Help us to, again, see our Lord Jesus, the one who died for us, who shed his blood, who gave his body to save us from our sins, to bring us into the freedom of the gospel, into the newness of life that the gospel provides, and help us to come with loving remembrance. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen.